0: Our text this morning, we're going to be beginning a series on the book of Proverbs. You might want to turn there. You'll find that on page 527 of our Pew Bible, if you happen to be using one of those. As you're uh, turning to this, Proverbs chapter 1, let me, let me ask you a few questions. Ask, ask a few questions. If you're, if you're a parent, if you have children, if you have a parent of children of any age, fill in the blank with, uh, with, this, with an adjective, above all else. I want, I want my child to be blank. What do you want for your child? Maybe you don't have kids. Um, maybe you're not married, but you'd like to be. Okay, fill in the blank here. I want to marry someone who is, above all else, blank. What, what, goes, what goes in that blank? Or it might just be for yourself. Is there an adjective that's maybe most true of who you think you want to be? If I could... I want to be this. I want to be blank. Okay, now what, I'm just not going to ask you to respond out loud so you're off the hook, but think about what are the things that come to mind if maybe we're really honest with ourselves, successful, rich, happy, godly, content, good-looking, smart. If you're thinking about it, the way you answer that question, if you really think about it, if you answer honestly, that actually cracks the door open into something um, maybe deep and true about who we are. How do we answer that question? If we could be anything we wanted to be, if our children could be anything we wanted them to be, what would it be? It brings up the question, what's really central for us? What do we think is really important? What do we think is really valuable? Something that we want to pass on to others or we want to bring it to ourselves in the form of other people. Now, there there are several ways you might actually answer that question from the Bible, from what the Bible teaches. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at one particular way in which the Bible answers that question. We're going to be looking at the book of Proverbs, talking about Proverbs' answer for that. What's most valuable for us? What's most valuable for our children to have in a spouse, to have in ourselves? What's most vital for our own lives? In the words of Proverbs and other places in Scripture, there is a word for that, and it's wise that the most important thing is that we would be wise, that we are people who are wise, that we acquire wisdom, that we live under wisdom. Now, what comes to mind when you think of that word wise or wisdom? It's not actually one we use typically. Maybe when you picture it, the aged you know, scholar reading by candlelight up in the top tower of the castle somewhere, uh, the philosophy professor from your university, the writer of the, of the latest best-selling self-help book, Maybe Yoda. <laughs> Short, green, pointed, hairy ears, speaking with his inverted syntax. Look this good when 900 years old you be, eh? Right? Yoda. What do you think of when you think of wise? What's your picture of wisdom? Well, right here in the middle of our Bibles, in the book of Proverbs, in the middle of a section of the Bible, we, we have this answer, this, this whole topic of wisdom. Now, if you, or even casually, uh, familiar with the Old Testament, you read through and you read lots and lots of stories. But most of the Old Testament is narrative. It's telling this long extended story about God and his people. But right in the middle there, there are these books, Job, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, certain ones of the Psalms that are devoted to wisdom. By and large, not telling a story, but telling something about what it means to live in this world under this uh, concept of of wisdom. So we're going to look over these next Probably a couple of months. What does Proverbs tell us about becoming wise? Okay, let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive in on the first few verses here. So let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would open up your word to us right now. Some of us might not even have anything like confidence that this is your word. Would you surprise us this morning? Some of us might have uh, believed that in theory, but it's been a long time since we've felt that in practice. Would you surprise us again? Would you, by your spirit, make these words come to life? They are your words to us, and we can trust them. Help us to do that. Use them to form us, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this morning we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, the king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction." So as we begin our series on, on wisdom this morning, we're, we're going to look at three things that this passage tells us about wisdom, about the first step of wisdom, about what it means to begin to become people who are wise. So three things about wisdom. What is it? Who can get it? And where do we begin? What is it? Who can get it? And where do we begin? First, wisdom, what is it? And this is scattered throughout this, uh, these first few verses, actually verses two through six. Uh, Over the next few weeks, we're going to take a a more in-depth look each week at what wisdom is made up of. But in general, here's a way to summarize the description that we have right here. Um, And this comes from uh, Bruce Walkie, an Old Testament scholar. His definition of the biblical definition of wisdom is the art of skillful living. The art of skillful living. Wisdom is about what it means to actually live well in this world with real skill. With real competence. To be able to navigate all the confusions, all the complexities of our lives. What does it mean to be wise? It means to live skillfully. Now look at some of the words that we have for wisdom, the vocabulary of it. There's, there's a full palette here of, of what's involved in living skillfully. Look at some of the words. Just going through the first few verses. Uh, verse 2, wisdom, instruction. Now that word instruction can also be, uh, can also be translated as discipline, correction. There's sometimes we need discipline in our lives to teach us wisdom. Verse 3, insight, wise dealing. Verse 4, prudence, knowledge, discretion. Verse 5, learning, guidance. Verse 6, the wisdom teaches us how to understand a proverb, a saying, a word of the wise, a riddle. In other words, w- wisdom prepares us for all the different manifold challenges of life. It teaches us how to understand the speech of the wise, that so we might become wise, even more wise ourselves. It teaches us prudence, that we would know how to choose the right path and walk down the right road. It teaches us wise dealing. It imparts knowledge. It gives us discretion. It gives us learning. Now, these words in this passage, in this book, come to us from the hands, as you see in verse 1, from the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David. Okay, Solomon is responsible for large parts of, of this book. You'll see if you read through Proverbs, different parts of the book are ascribed to different people. But the majority, the core of this book is built around the teachings of Solomon. Now, if you know anything about Solomon, um, he was both the wisest and most foolish of people. Listen to what uh, Solomon's beginning in wisdom. Solomon was um, the son of King David, the second king in David's line. And here's what It says, about uh, Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 4, God appears to Solomon in a vision and says, ask me anything you, for anything you want. And he doesn't ask for wealth, and he doesn't ask for success. What he asks for, actually, is wisdom in governing God's people. So verse 29 of 1 Kings chapter 4, you can just listen. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite and Hermon and Calcol and Darda and the sons of Mahal. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that's in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and fish. And all the nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Look at the career of Solomon and what made him great was his wisdom. That's what made him a great king. But listen to the way that wisdom plays out. He dispenses justice. He's wise. He knows how to rule rightly. Um, His wisdom extends into what we'd call botany and zoology. He knew about beasts of the field. He knew about the, the cedars of Lebanon. His wisdom drove him into every area of life, seeking understanding. Now, as we'll see later on in the next couple months, Solomon began well but didn't end well. He began his life characterized by wisdom and ultimately down the road didn't follow his own teaching. But we see even in that description of Solomon's wisdom, the wisdom encompasses Everything about skillful living. Everything about understanding our world and walking through it well. Now we see it, come, it, it gives us a, uh, not only this full palette of skills, it also gives us a full range of settings, both personal and corporate. And when we tend to think about wisdom, we tend to think about, uh, those of you who are Christians, you may pray, pray prayers like this, you know, Lord, give me real wisdom in making this decision about X. Okay, there's this thing ahead of me, and I want to navigate it well. And those prayers tend to be about things that are very personal to our lives. And wisdom certainly speaks into that. It teaches us how to navigate our personal lives. But what's interesting about this passage, it points out that, our, that wisdom is not only personal, 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 but it's also corporate. Look at um, in verse 3. It teaches us to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. Okay, it's not just for you as a private person, it is for you as you interact with the whole world. That we would be people who are marked by righteousness, right dealing, right relationship. Who are given over to justice. Justice matters to us. We want to see justice um, manifested in the world around us. Injustice grates against the grain of the universe and it matters to those who are wise. Wisdom is personal but it's also corporate. To be a wise person, there's no dichotomy between those two your personal life and your, and your uh, corporate life, who you are at home and who you are at work and in the society, society around you, that wisdom would guide us everywhere we go, into every relationship that we have. And then you see in this breadth of wisdom, all these terms of wisdom, that it, wisdom is much broader than what we typically tend to highlight, which is simply to be smart. We're in a university town, where that's certainly celebrated. Our students are, most of them taking uh, well-earned rests at home right now over the summer. But all all year long, what are they being bombarded with? Have you acquired the knowledge it takes, the facts, the understanding it takes to answer an exam well, to earn your degree? How often, as parents, if you have children, um, you so celebrate? My child is so smart. So smart. Uh, growing up, I somehow became fairly good at trivial pursuit, which for a long time I thought was this great badge of honor until I stopped to think about even the name of the game, trivial pursuit. I'm a, becoming a master of things that are trivial. <laughs> Disconnected facts about the universe, I can recall them from time to time. And what does Solomon teach us? That that is not wisdom. Knowledge is a, is a small piece of it. But to, but to live skillfully is not the same thing as to simply acquire a lot of facts. And this book is given for us, that we might become people who are much more than just that, just smart, that we would be people who are wise. Okay, so who's it for? Wisdom, who can get? That's what a little bit about what it is. Second thing, wisdom, who can get it? Look at verses 4 and 5. There are three classes of people that are named by Solomon as people who are candidates for wisdom. Verse 4, to give prudence to the simple. Okay, the simple. Uh, depending on your translation, it might say something like simple or simple-minded or gullible or naive. If you are simple, if you're naive, if you're gullible, then wisdom is offered to you. Okay, now, of the categories we're going to look at here, the naive, the gullible are the, are the furthest out on the edge, teetering on the edge of what we're going to see later on is becoming either wise or a fool. But for the gullible... Um, Are you going to embrace wisdom? Now think about what happens to the naive, the gullible, when they don't become wise. Sooner or later, they become hardened. If you're naive about the world, then you're always exposed to the great disappointments of the world. You're surprised by suffering when it enters into your life. You're surprised by your own failure. This maybe naive, simple-minded optimism of yours maybe gets crushed, and what happens? You become hardened. How do you know if you're naive? How do you know if you're among these people who are uncommitted? Well, everything is a possibility for you. Everything's an open road. There's no deep allegiance. Nothing that's going to hold you down. Nothing that's going to bind you. You're unwilling to commit yourself to anything. Okay, let me give you a small example. I hit this all the time with um, when I was working with college students, and I've been that myself and sometimes still am. You can't commit to your plans for the weekend. Okay? Let's watch a movie. Well... Maybe. Let's see. I'm going to hold out and see if I get a better offer. How many college students have ended up doing nothing on Friday night because they were wading through their three options and never picked one of them and suddenly found themselves doing nothing? The uncommitted, the unwilling to uh, commit. Or maybe something more major in your life than what you're doing on Friday night. You can't commit your life to another person. So if you are naive and gullible uncommitted then you may find yourself floating from serious relationship to serious relationship always bringing the ship down when things start to get too serious when it starts to look too confining when it starts to look too much like your options might be closing in maybe this maybe every few years or every few months or every few days the newest and best thing utterly captures your imagination and it's got you again this is why commercials work on all of us to varying degrees you know, you're tired. You sit down in front of your TV. There's nothing really particularly wrong with your life. And then you see this commercial for this new car. And you see this uh, attractive, professional-looking person driving this car, driving hairpin curves like you're not allowed to do in Williamsburg. <laughs> You'll never be able to do. And you think, you know, my car is really getting kind of old. It needs to be washed and vacuumed. I should think about a new car. <laughs> you know it runs fine but suddenly you're becoming um, dissatisfied with that when we are gullible, when we're naive, we are the marketing person's dream come true. Now maybe for you it's not cars. It's really not cars for me. Here's what killed me this week. The new Apple iPhone came out. I need that. The truth is I really don't but I'm gullible. And I'm in need of growing in wisdom. The naive, they're uncommitted, they're in this precarious position, but there's still hope for us if we are naive, that we might in fact embrace wisdom. The opportunity still exists to grab the right path, to follow down the right course. But here's the thing about being naive. You actually can't be naive and uncommitted forever. Because at some point, as you wander through life, uncommitted to anything, you're going to find that you have in fact made irreversible choices. Because no door stays open forever. You meet this person. Should I marry this person? Should I not? That will string along only for so long, before that person's going to make the choice for you. You know, you cannot remain uncommitted and gullible forever. And there is a window of opportunity. The writer of Proverbs tells us to become someone who is wise. Okay, so the first category is naive. Second is verse four: the youth, the young. Okay, now the the range of this word could be anyone from a child up to about age thirty in the Old Testament anytime before you actually in Hebrew thought were considered an elder okay you're in you're in your youth long span of time um, for us you know in the way we tend to think of it a child a teenager it addresses you this book says to you if you are young you must learn to become wise now there's 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 great dignity in this because if you're a teenager then you live in a world in our uh, in Williamsburg and our country, maybe um, at times nearer than that, maybe sometimes even our own church, where you feel like nobody really pays attention to me. (laughs) Nobody has real respect for me and the struggles of what it means to be in high school, to be in junior high. Nobody understands what it's like to wade through this stuff. Well, the writer of Proverbs treats you with real dignity. He addresses you and he says, it is of utmost importance that you become wise. You, even at your age, are facing the momentous decision of your life? Are you going to walk down a road that leads to wisdom? Are you going to walk down a road that leads you into foolishness? Starting in about the seventh grade, that's not an exaggeration. My parents, who were great and supportive in so many ways, non-pressuring in so many ways, started to say things to me like this. You know, seventh grade, this is the year when colleges really start to look at your transcript. (laughs) If you're going to get in college, you better start taking it seriously now. Uh, Now, I don't think that's true. (laughs) But at some deeper level, there is something that really is true about that. That even when we are young, the decisions that we are making are leading us in one direction or another. And to something much more serious than to college or not. But to a life of wisdom or to a life of foolishness. And some of us find out, in fact, that it's possible to be young to be a youth for your entire life. But the book of Proverbs offers us, invites us, the young and the youth, to become wise. Now, the third category of people that get invited here, addressed, look at verse 5, are the wise themselves. Now, maybe that sounds a little counterintuitive. You're telling the people who already are wise, here is your invitation to become wise. Maybe you think, you look at that and you think, well, th- there's one class of people that don't need this, and that's, th- that's this group of people. But the wise will, not, will shake their head and say, no, 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 no. This is very much for me because the wise never stop learning. And the wise never stop adding to their wisdom. The wise never feel like they have arrived. Now, you know what it's like to be with a wise person. Maybe somebody you respect and admire, you listen to, they give you counsel that's very precious to you. Maybe that person that you've known, when you're with them, you always feel listened to by that person. You always feel somehow, as young as maybe you are, that your opinion and your thoughts are respected, that they don't lord themselves over you. Why? Because the wise are not embarrassed to learn something new from anyone that's around them. They hunger to grow wiser still. Proverbs nine, 9 says, Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. Because wisdom brings with it this inseparable Humility. That the wise are the ones that know there is so much that they don't know. Okay, so those are the three classes of people that Proverbs offers itself to. Now, there is one class of people that Proverbs says, this book is not for you. Look at the second half of verse 7. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Who cannot become wise? The fool can't be wise. Now, we're going to look a lot more at what it means in the book of Proverbs to be a fool over the next several weeks. But just hear this. This is not a punishment imposed from the outside. Well, you know, you've, you haven't made the grenade, you're a fool, so, so we're going to withdraw the opportunity of wisdom from you. The fool can't learn wisdom because of what a fool is by definition. Someone who turns away from wisdom, somebody who won't learn, who won't bend his ear, who won't humbly accept the discipline and the knowledge that have to come to him. Are you hungry to be wise? Is this book going to apply to you? Second half of verse 7 says, If that's not your hunger, then you're a fool. And the book invites us to more. Okay, third thing, wisdom. Not only who is it offered to, but where do we begin? Verse 7, this is the crux of not only this whole passage, but actually the whole book. Look at verse 7 with me. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This is key to understanding the whole book. Now, maybe you know people as I do. You might even have people like this in your own family who start reading a book and then skip to the last page and to read what happens because they can't, they can't keep reading until they know how it's all going to turn out. And then they read the rest of the book. Now, that I can't imagine doing that. That would ruin the whole book for me. It just colors the way you read everything else. Um, a, couple, a few years ago, one of our William and Mary students, it was right after... The most recent, about to change now, but the most recent Harry Potter book came out. All these students were so excited to go read it. Not me, of course, but all these students. I read it. Okay. Uh, And one of them, I hear the story about one of our students. she, She buys the book and she starts reading it and she gets to about page three. And someone has taken a pen and scrawled on the page, blank dies at the end and fills in the name. Now, if you haven't read it, I'm not going to totally ruin it for you, but it ruined it for her, <laughs> right? There she has been so excited about this book, and now she knows how it's going to end, and it ruined the experience for her. Colored everything about the way she was going to read the book. Or imagine yourself, you like mystery novels, and you get down to the last page, and you find somebody's ripped it out. And now you don't know what happened, because now you're in the weird situation of knowing so much you know everything that's happened in this book, but at the same time, you don't know what's happened in this book. Because Hercule Poirot hasn't told you what happened. Told you what you missed. It's ripped out. So you know all this, but you don't know anything. Well, here we have the last page of the book stapled to the front. Okay? And here in verse 7, we find out the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't have this, then you cannot be wise. And you see, if we were to rip this page out of the book of Proverbs, you could read the rest of the book of Proverbs and gain great skill in many different ways. you learn lots of incredibly practical things. Now, I'm sort of rounding off in the sense that there are a couple other places in Proverbs where it does say something like this about fear of the Lord. But this is where where the author plants his uh, flag right at the beginning that this is what it's about. And if you took that page away, if you took that concept away, those statements away from the book of Proverbs, then you could think that you were wise and be so far off. You could learn, memorize every proverb in the book of Proverbs. You could know how to use them. They could form you in some ways. But if you don't have the fear of the Lord, then this says you cannot have any hope of really being in any deep way a wise person. Bruce Walkey again says that this verse is the spiritual grammar for understanding the entire book. Or the secret decoder ring that translate the message for us. If you don't have that ring, you're not going to understand what's going on. If we don't have this fear of the Lord, it says you must start here. Okay, so what does it mean to start here? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning, the first step of wisdom. Okay, but first step in maybe a different way than we usually think about it. Confucius, okay? The journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. Okay, well, a thousand miles later, the first step might be a, a distant memory for you. Uh, maybe a better uh, proverb for Proverbs would be the staircase of a thousand floors begins on the first step. What happens on a staircase? You take the first step, and the book of Proverbs says that first step is the fear of the Lord. And when you get up to about the third story, if somebody yanks that first step out, the whole staircase comes tumbling down. You never get past the first step. You never get away from the foundation. It's not something you learn at the beginning and you go on to bigger and better things. It is the environment in which you spend the rest of your life becoming wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is the foundational thing. And we never get away from it. And if we don't get it, we will never be wise. Okay, so what does it mean then to fear the Lord, if that's so central in this passage and actually throughout the whole Bible? Okay, that first word, fear... Uh, the Hebrew word there can have this range of meaning, anything from um, awe or respect to abject terror on the other end. Okay, And the way it's used here, when you see fear of the Lord in the book of Proverbs or elsewhere in the Bible, it's it's somewhere along that spectrum. It's more than just casual respect. But it's not a terrified fear that that drives you away from the one that you're discussing. It's not a terrified fear that drives you away from God. It's a respect and an awe that somehow actually draws you to him. All right, let me give you an example. For those of you, I know at least one of you in this congregation who is a mountain climber, I've never climbed a mountain, you know, in the pick and oxygen tank sort of sense. But I've seen movies where people did, so I know a lot about it. (laughs) Okay, every time in a a mountain climber movie, somebody is invariably going to say something like this. To the young mountain climber, well, lad, you have to respect the mountain. She's beautiful, but she's dangerous. She lures your heart, but she can kill you if you're not careful. Some wizened old uh, mountain climber is going to say that to him. Why? Because mountains are beautiful. But there's also something dangerous about them, right? But there's also something deeply connected about those two facts, That something about the very danger gives a respect and an awe that actually magnifies its beauty for us. Now, if I were to tell you that yesterday um, that I climbed up on the roof of my ranch house, my one-story house, you would at best be only moderately impressed, you know. Um, If I told you that I climbed Mount Everest last year, you'd have a very different reaction. Climbed on the roof of my house. Oh, were you cleaning your gutters? I climbed Mount Everest. What was it like? What's it like to be that cold? What did you do when you couldn't breathe? You know what? How did you sleep at night? There's something about somebody who's climbed a mountain that inspires these questions and this awe, because there's something about mountains that do that to us. Now, God is not a mountain, and He's not a created thing, and uh, He is much greater than the majesty of a mountain. But you see, that's exactly the point of this verse: fearing the Lord. Knowing this God, who is actually our creator, didn't just make mountains, he made everything. He made them out of nothing. He spoke a word, and everything that is came into being. He's the one who holds every aspect of our lives in his hands. He's the one who knows what's going on around the entire world faster than CNN. He holds all things. He's the one who created us. He's the one who um, established a certain way in which the universe works. He's the one who thundered from Mount Sinai, who gave laws to his people. He's the one who delivered these great judgments on those who uh, wandered from him and betrayed him. He's the one who stands at the very center of all reality. He's the one who's worthy of all praise and all devotion who is righteous and just, who ultimately will not let justice injustice go unpunished. If a mountain inspires fear and awe, how much more, the wise say, does our God, a wise person, understands who God is, he sees him from afar, and he is inappropriate on fear. Now the theological term for this is the transcendence of God, the unknowability of him, the immensity of him, the The aspect of God that we can't stare at too long before we feel like it's weighing down and crushing us. The God who created us. Wise people consider that. And if you don't know that God, if you don't know the one who holds the universe in his hands, if you don't know the one who makes the world work, who gives skill and makes life skillful, then you can never be wise. Now, but that's not the only thing it says. The fear of the Lord. The writer of Proverbs had several... Terms he could have used for God. He could have used this very generic word for God, which you'll see translated God in the Old Testament all over the place. There's a more generic term that you see Lord transla- as translated as Lord in your Bibles. Lord with lowercase letters. But if you look for most of you in your version of the Bible, it has Lord in capitalized letters. Okay, that's a way of rendering this one Hebrew word Yahweh. And Yahweh is the name by which God revealed himself to his chosen people. It's his covenant name. It's the name that he uttered when he appeared to Moses with the bush burning, who is terrified, by the way. Exodus 3 and 4, go back and look at it. In fear and awe of what's happening in front of him. God comes to him and says, my name is Yahweh. Which itself is this mysterious thing. It means something like, I am. But for Moses, and for Abraham, and for the people of God, and for us as believers in Jesus, The word Lord, God's covenantal name, means that God is not only transcendent. He does not only stand far off, but he has come near for the good of his people. He's bent down low. He's entered into relationship with us. When he said to his Old Testament people, I am Yahweh, that came with this promise of, I am sealing my love on you. All the nations of the world, you are the one who are going to know me. You are the nation to whom I'm revealing this name. Now the remarkable thing is, you go into the New Testament and you find all these places where um, Old Testament passages are being quoted. Where this word is used, Yahweh, Lord. And the New Testament writers are saying, "This this is who Jesus is. We come to the New Testament and find out, not only does God come to us in his covenantal love in the Old Testament... He comes to us greater still, his covenantal love in the person of his son, Jesus. When we say fear of the Lord, we are saying all respect, appropriate weight to our Lord Jesus, who did not stand far off, but came to us, who gave himself up for us that we might actually live, who loved us enough to chase after us when we were not only the naive, not only the young, but the fools, running in the other direction, hearts hardened, fear of the Lord is this awe and respect for the God who comes to us in love like this. fear points to God 's transcendence, Lord points to his eminence. okay now a couple just quick things about how does this challenge us okay if we 're going to be people who want to be wise if we 're going to look at these over the next several weeks if we're going to be people who try to embrace wisdom, if we're going to be people who actually say that, the only way to begin to be wise is to have this fear of the Lord. What is a fear of the Lord going to do in our lives even this week? I think it does at least two things. First thing is that it humbles us. It teaches us that the first step in wisdom is in fact learning uh, that there is a God and that you are not he. That I am not. There is a guide, and it's not us. It teaches us uh, what, in our culture, is a radical statement. Listen to what it's saying. Listen how this might sound to some of you. Maybe it's certainly going to sound to your friends. You're telling me that the only people who are wise are those who know Jesus. That's what it's telling us. It certainly doesn't mean the only people who are really smart. It certainly doesn't mean the only people who have something to teach us. It certainly doesn't mean the only people who have mastered some aspect of life. But if God is real, and if He's come to us in the person of Jesus, the writer of Scripture here says, the only way to be wise is to know Him. Now, even if you don't believe that about Jesus, at least think about this. If that were true, Jesus is who He said He was. If God really exists, how could it be any other way? If God really does exist, how could we possibly begin to be wise without knowing Him? that's what the writer of proverbs is saying it's making that claim god does exist he's come to us in jesus and the only way you're going to be wise is to know him to be in right relationship with him it humbles us we cannot become this on our own but fear the lord what else does it do it lifts us up because fear is not the only thing that marks our lives God is not only transcendent and thundering over us. God comes to us in the person of Jesus. He's not only the great lawgiver; he is the great lawkeeper. He's not the only one who. He's not only the one who meets out justice. He's the one who takes justice on his own back that he might free us. Fear of the Lord, fear of Jesus. It both both humbles us, and it lifts us up. Because we no longer have to be wise. Enough, and we no longer have to be skillful enough, and we no longer have to get it right, that we're in fact now free to become people who are wise because we know the one who is wisdom. So let's just end with this. Do we want to be people who are wise? However, we might have answered that question at the very beginning, fill in the blank, you want your child to be what? Could this become more of a part of our vocabulary? Not only the things that we say, but the things we really believe about reality. That God calls us to become people who are wise. And he invites us to become people who are wise. In the words of a New Testament, wisdom teacher, book of James. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask and God will give it to you. He will give that to us. May we become people who are wise. and May that come through knowing Jesus who is the one who is wise. Let's pray together. Father, we are people who run after many things. I am someone who runs after many things. And often that is not wisdom. And often that is not you. May you capture our hearts more. May we see the transcendent beauty of who you are, our creator God. And we thank you that that does not crush us because you stoop down to us in the person of Jesus, that you reveal yourself to us, not only in your majesty, but in your covenant love, your promising love, your unending, unbendable love that lifts us up and makes us wise. May we know that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.